Good morning, Bergen Park. Today's reading uh, will be from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Thank you, Casey. Well, it's going to get a little political in here today. Actually, every Sunday, i got to let you know, every Sunday is a little political. We can see the marching cry of the early church was, Jesus is Lord. Now, that may sound kind of normal for us, but see, in the first century, they would say, Caesar is Lord. So you'd gather an assembly, maybe a gathering in the town square, some event would take place, and the people would cry out, Caesar is kurios. Kurios means Lord. And so when the Christians came to faith, when Jesus rose from the dead, they started pronouncing this message, no, not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. Meaning, it was kind of that banner, that flag that was waving. The beginning of the revolution has begun because see, our knee doesn't simply bow to the emperor. Rather, our allegiance, our heart, our finances, our time, our energy, everything we have is now an allegiance to Jesus Christ and we're bowing our lives to Him and to Him alone. And so what we're coming to today is a little political. However, the entire Bible is political, meaning what it's referencing us to is to the lordship and to the kingship of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that Jesus is king. So here's the question we're going to answer today. If Jesus is king, what do we do with our political parties? If Jesus is king, how do we relate to the politics and to the government and to those who are in authority? You know, after the election, this slogan went out. You may have heard this slogan. You may have said this slogan, not my president. A number of pundits on television, uh, articles were written. Uh, celebrities would stand up and say, not my president. You could buy a t-shirt, get the bumper sticker, get on Facebook, get on the Facebook, not my president. Now, I'm not referring to what happened in 2012, but in the year 2000 may sound relevant to today, but actually in the year 2000, when George Bush was elected, there were those that said, not my president. And yet it's an equal opportunity slogan. Because in the year 2008, not my president. And then, of course, in the year 2016, not my president. Now, what does that slogan mean? I am not going to surrender myself. I'm not going to bow myself. I'm not going to put myself under someone to whom I disagree. 
I'm not going to place myself under somebody I do not like, I do not agree with, or I did not vote for. Not my president. Now, here's the question, church. What do we do with that? Because see, that's what Peter is speaking into in the passage that we're in today, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 11 through 17. If you want to grab a Bible, there is a Bible, hopefully like in the perimeter the area, right in front of you, you should see a Bible. Uh, grab that Bible, we're going to jump into that passage, but what do we do? How do we respond to the governing authorities? And then what do we do with that kind of independence? That self-determination that really defines us, I think, as Americans. We have this uh, history that comes out of a revolution where we said, not my empire. The British Empire is not my government. And we revolted against that. What do we do with that? How does that fit within the context that Jesus is Lord? And so that's what we're going to get into today. And see, what's happening in the passage as we've gone through the book of 1 Peter is we're transitioning from our identity in Christ, meaning who we are, and now he's focusing on what we do. And the Bible is always structured this way. This is incredibly important for us. That before the Bible tells us what to do, it's going to remind you of who you are. And so what he's done from chapter 1, I think in verse 13, all the way to chapter 2 and verse 10, he's talking about our identity as the children of God. And the reason we're the children of God is we've been born again. Now, how did that happen? It was through belief in the gospel. The gospel came in like a seed. And when that gospel came in and it took root in your heart, it began to grow and to flourish. And you now have this new life in you. The life of Christ is in you. And that's why in chapter 2, verse 9, you may have noticed he calls us a royal priesthood. Now, if anybody in here has royalty, the reason you have royalty is you have royal blood. You're of the house of Windsor right? Why? Because that royal blood is in you, and therefore royalty has to do with lineage. Well, what is it saying that we are a royal priesthood? We have the blood of Christ in us. We are of the line of Jesus. Even though I may be from a line of misfits, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I suddenly become a part of a new family. I am now a royal priesthood. I'm a chosen race, a holy nation. And then he says, a people that belong to God. See, what he's saying is, church, this is who we are. Well, the question becomes, if that's who you are, how do you live? What does it look like to live as the people of God? Because you're no longer somebody that gets to determine how they live. I don't know if you realize that. When you come into a family, you are not autonomous. I try to remind my kids. Son, dad, why are you telling me to do this? Because you're not autonomous. Now, when you leave my home, you're still not going to be totally autonomous, but you'll be able to make decisions on your own. But when you're a part of a family, you come under the, the lordship of your father and mother, and you represent them wherever you go. Well, likewise, when we come to faith in Jesus, we're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And therefore, what does it look like for us to engage with people who are in positions of authority, and maybe we didn't vote for them, maybe we don't like them. Maybe we despise them. Maybe their political agendas are ones that we get behind, or maybe some of those agendas are things that we do not get behind. What does it mean to worship Jesus Christ and yet live, into, live in a, a place where we have governing officials? So if you grab your Bible, let's jump in. Verse 11, incredibly practical for us. 
I think, in such a politically divided climate to learn how do we live as God's people in a political world. Well, watch this in verse 11. He says in chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And that sounds pretty vivid, doesn't it? The passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Now, why do the passions of the flesh wage war against your soul? Because of who you are. Who does it say that we are? We are sojourners and we are exiles. Now, what an exile is, is somebody who's living in a land. They're expats, you may think of them. They're living in a land that is not their own. Now, you may be born here. You may have been born in Colorado. This may be where you grew up. But when you come to faith in Jesus, you're under a new Lord. I'm not self-determining anymore. That was my previous life. Now, to come under a new Lord doesn't mean you didn't have a Lord before. You know, whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, it you're still under a lordship. Now, you may be unaware of what that lordship is. It may be your parents. It may be a philosophy. It may be just following your own desires. But all of us come under a lord. When we come under the lordship of Jesus, suddenly, even though we're in a land that is our own, this land is no longer our home. And what I mean by home, it doesn't mean we don't love our country. We don't love this city and the place in which we live. But the values we live by are not just simply the values of our land. The values we live by are the values of our Lord. Because where you have a Lord, you submit. And so he says, as sojourners, meaning as those who are living in a land that is not their own, abstain from sinful desires because, see, that's not who you are. You're no longer one that just gives into their desires. You're one who submits their desires to Jesus because Jesus is good. And so if Jesus is good, why do I need to look elsewhere? If I'm looking elsewhere, it's because I don't trust that Jesus is good. My problem is a faith issue. And, and my solution is to repent. Father, would you show me the goodness of Jesus Christ? I don't trust you in my sexuality. I want to do it my way. I don't trust you in parenting. I don't trust you in my finances. Show me your goodness. And as you see the goodness of God and you taste and see the Lord is good, we submit to Him because He is good. And so he's saying abstain from sinful desires because this is... Church, this is who we are. It's not because God is forbidding us to do something. Who we are informs what we do. And see, who God is determines who we are. And the reason we abstain is because we worship Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. So he says, abstain from sinful desires. And listen, anything that's going to war against your soul probably should stay away from. You know, if I knew my finances were going to get warred against, is that a word, warred against? I'd stay away from that. Likewise, he's saying if your soul, if something precious that you have is going to be set at war against, therefore abstain from those things. Watch this, verse 12, and this is what he's going to build on for the next two chapters. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, and notice the words, when they speak against you as evildoers, it's going to come. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, everything hinges on this verse 13. He's saying, because of who we are, this is now how we live. Because we are sojourners, because we are the children of God, because we have royalty in our blood, right now we live as honorable before those who do not believe. That's what the Gentiles are. 
Gentiles means the unbelieving world. We do good deeds to those who speak evil of us. Hey, how's that going? (laughs) Right? How is that going? Love your enemies. What did Jesus say? Pray for those who persecute you. Sound familiar? Do good deeds. And notice the language he uses, when they speak of you as evildoers. So imagine the picture. Here's the, the idea. You're going out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You're living for the honor of God, and people are calling you evil. How are you supposed to respond? And what he says is respond with good deeds. Live for the blessing of the city. See, what Peter's doing in some ways you'll discover is he's picking up on the language of Jeremiah. Because in Jeremiah, the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. And yet as they were in exile, as they were under a nation that was enslaving them, it was unjust, God said to the Israelites, I want you to live in such a way that the city and the state that you live in will prosper. I want you to bless the people who are causing you to suffer. Now that may seem utterly ridiculous because it's ridiculous in some ways if we don't look to Jesus because that's what Jesus has done. Jesus submitted himself to suffering so that we would not suffer. Jesus became and received what I deserved so that I could receive what he deserved. And he's saying, I want you to live a gospel-centered life. I want you to live a Jesus-centered life. I want you to look like Jesus when you're being persecuted when you're being spoken against, when others are calling you evil, meaning you need to die to self. You with me? How's that going? A testimony when someone is persecuting you, is against you. What did Jesus say? I want you to pick up your cross. How often, church? How often? Daily and follow me. You know why? Because in following a Lord, you've got to die to your own lordship. And you've got to every, every day remind yourself, the reason I'm surrendering to Jesus is because He is good. Because He is merciful. Because He is gracious. Because He is holy. Because He has given me what on my own I could not earn. And therefore, I treasure and I desire Him. I submit to Him. So what does that look like? So if that's who we are, what does it look like to live that way? Certainly as a people that may be marginalized for what we believe. And I'll tell you, that's where the church is today. More and more, we're on the margins of society, meaning the things that we believe. In our culture, it's not just simply that people disagree with us. What you'll hear often is people will say, I think what you believe is evil. And what I mean by evil is not just the the fringe doctrines. You know, some Christian groups that are evil, (laughs) they're nuts. And maybe you've come from one. Maybe you're wondering if you're in one. (laughs) But what they're referring to are the core values of the Christian life. And, And now our culture is looking at us and saying, it's not that I disagree with you. I think that what you bring to society is harmful. It's evil. How do we respond to that? Well, let's jump in in verse 13. As those who are royal, what are we called to do? Now notice this. He says, be subject. You may have a version of the Bible that says submit. Sounds like a horrible word, right? It's what happens when you're wrestling and somebody's got you and you can't move and you hit the mat and say, I submit, I give up. 
But understand, this word in the New Testament is not a word of weakness. In our culture, it's always seen as something of weakness. Rather, what we're going to discover is submit, to subject yourself, is actually a word of strength. It takes tremendous control. So he's going to say, submit. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Surrender yourself for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. And then he summarizes it again down in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So as royalty, submit. As God's chosen people, submit. Now we're going to discover at the end why that's so powerful and how that relates to how we live in the world today. But he's saying, because of who you are, this is how you live. And submission, the word itself, if you take it and you divide it in half, submission. Sub means to be under. Mission. To be under someone else's mission. To support somebody else's agenda. To get behind someone else's vision. To use your talents, your strengths, your abilities to bless them, to serve them in such a way that they are successful and they achieve what they want to achieve. So he's saying when it comes to the governing authorities, we should be the best citizens, even if we disagree. Now we're going to discover how we can disagree, because we're in a, a kind of government where you can disagree. Now Peter was not in the kind of government where you can disagree. Disagreement in his culture was called death, if they found out. Now we can So he's saying we're supposed to take our strengths and our abilities and surrender them in such a way that our city, the city of Evergreen, flourishes. That our state, Colorado, flourishes, not because we agree with everything, but because we want to bring honor. We want to bring blessing to everyone that we encounter, whether they agree with us or not, because if you go back to the Old Testament, that's where it begins. Remember this guy, Abraham? Remember that guy? Yeah. Abraham, I'm going to take you out of a land that is your own, and I'm going to make you an exile, just like we are. We are exiles. And this is how you're going to live. You're going to bless those who bless you. You're going to, I mean, bless those who curse you. You're going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you can go out and be a blessing to others. That's what he's calling us. We're living under the promise of Abraham. That in Jesus, we are supposed to live for the benefit of our community. Now, let me just kind of say, the church hasn't done that well. And so if you're a part of that, if you felt that, I want to apologize to you. The Bible is self-correcting. Jesus is self-correcting. Those that often try to identify with Him are not necessarily living in a way that honors Him. And what Peter's addressing here is that same kind of idea. Are we falling in line with who we are? Well, what does it look like to fall in line with who we are? It means to surrender ourselves, our gifts and our talents in such a way that the community in which we live is blessed. And so notice he says to every institution. Every. Now, in the Greek, that means every. And just to remind you, in verse 17, I know I'm real bright. He says, honor who? In verse 17. Everyone. So whether they're of the LGBT community, you honor. You show honor. 
Now, honor is different than agreement. Whether that leader is of a unjust, unjust, corrupt individual, which most leaders are corrupt and unjust. Just we don't we don't always like to say that about our leaders, right? We because we cut that's our team. And when you have somebody in your tribe, you're sometimes a little little cloudy to their injustice. But but all in some ways oppress and all are unjust. It's just they oppress in a way that benefits us. Because they oppress the people we don't like. But he's saying honor everyone. Now we're going to talk about in just a minute what that means, but what does it look like for us to bless, to honor, to be a community that may disagree at times with leaders that are in authority, that may disagree, and how that affects us in our business practices, that affects us as a church. When somebody comes in and says, hey, I want to get married here, and this is my husband, it's two men that want to get married, how do we respond to that? How do we engage in those people and disagree on God's law and hold His values up as supreme and yet do it in a way that shows grace, and respect for the individual. Well, that's what he's getting at when he says honor everyone. That it's not just the people we vote for, we honor all. So what does that look like? Well, let me start by saying, here's what it doesn't look like. And before we do that, kind of backtrack just a little bit. If our identity is that we're followers of Jesus, then we should see Jesus doing what Peter's asking us to do. You with me? And we see that because Jesus submitted himself to unjust, immoral, and cruel leaders. Think of Pilate. Pilate, John 19, comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, listen, I got power. I can let you go or I can crucify you. And so listen to how Jesus responds. John chapter 19, verse 10. Verse 11, he says, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. He's saying, Pilate, you got nothing on me. You got nothing on me. But the reason I'm submitting to you, the reason I'm honoring you, is because your authority comes from above. It's not because I agree. We've got to get the agreement idea out. Because often as Americans, we start with what are my rights? You need to start as Christians with who is my Lord. Because you're not fundamentally Americans. You're fundamentally Christians. And see, what happens in the unbelieving world, they see that. They they see that line. They see our own hypocrisy because on the one hand, they hear what Jesus says, but when we put our rights ahead of our Lord... We start to live just simply as Americans and not as as Christians who happen to be Americans. And so Jesus submitted himself to unjust authority. He honored them. So what does it not mean? I'll tell you, the first thing that submission does not mean it is doesn't mean we obey. We don't obey absolutely. Because if you go through the New Testament, you'll find that the apostles did not obey the governing officials. You go to the book of Acts, in particular in Acts chapter 5, the gospel was just taking over. I mean, it was growing. People were coming to faith. People were being baptized, giving their life to Jesus Christ, following Him. And in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are in jail, and among them is this guy that wrote this book named Peter. And Peter seems to contradict himself in what he says in Acts chapter 5 as he's speaking to the civil officials who have told him, not once, not twice, numerous times, stop talking about 
Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, the high priest questioned them and said, we strictly charged you. I love that language. Didn't we tell you? Didn't we strictly charge you? We didn't just charge you. We strictly charged you. Not to teach in this name. And yet here you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We've already told you this. So they know what the law is. They know what the civil officials want them to do, but they're disobeying. And here's the reason why. You ready? This is a political statement. Verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. When men command us to do what God forbids, or when men forbid us to do what God commands, we have to disobey. When men command us to do what God forbids, or when men tell us, uh, forbid us to do what God commands, we have to disobey. But there's a way to disobey and yet honor someone. You do it all the time. Probably do it at work, right? When you have somebody who's a superior and you do not want to lose your job, but you disagree with what they're saying, how do you respond to that person? You are seasoned with salt. You are sweet. You are gentle. You are kind. You are patient. You listen first, right? Because you know that person's in a position of authority. But you disagree with your boss, but what your boss can give you is financial freedom. Well, the boss we are under doesn't give us financial freedom. He gives us himself. It's Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I don't want you to speak to these individuals with sweetness and with salt because of their authority, but because of my authority. See, you know how to do this when the weight of glory is on you. You need to learn to do this and bring the weight of Jesus in your political conversations. You with me? Because you know what that's like when you're speaking to someone who's, maybe it was a parent, or maybe it's a neighbor, someone that you respected, maybe it's somebody in the community, and you don't want to lose the relationship because you value who they are, and so you speak to that person in such a way that you honor them, and yet you disagree. I'll tell you, I don't think in the church we do that well at all. And let me not get into social media. You know, social media has just showed us how bad we do because... And listen, this isn't against anyone. It's against me as much as anyone because we're so spontaneous. You can just put it on there, right? You can just put it out there. Oh, that sounds good. And it kind of stirs this fleshly desire to have my voice heard. As Christians, it's not about having your voice heard. It's about glorifying God. And what you need to do is to die to having your voice heard so that God can be glorified. And the church hasn't done this well. So it doesn't mean just simply obeying those who are in positions of authority. We submit ourselves first and foremost to God. And second, submission does not mean, and this may seem strange, worshiping our leaders. Now, this was a real struggle for those in the first century because one of the fastest growing religions was emperor worship. That the emperor at this time was a guy named Nero, and he thought himself divine. Interestingly, when you look at the British monarchy... They also saw themselves as somewhat divine. There was this divine right that was placed on them. You'll see this in any kingship, that there's a sense within Japan as well as with the emperor that that person is not just a human being. Suddenly there's a divine nature in them. In some ways they are like God. And the fastest growing religion in the first century before Christianity was the worship of the emperor. 
Now, I don't think we worship our political figures, but we do make them messiahs. Come on now. Can we be honest? We turn our political leaders into messiahs. How often is our hope a political agenda or a slogan? You know, it's time for change. And there's nothing wrong with getting behind a political party. That's not what I'm communicating. But you've got to be careful because your heart wants to worship. You were created to worship. You're created in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. You were created to celebrate something. And when Jesus isn't predominant in your heart, you're going to celebrate a messianic person who can come into us, to our country, and make things right again. Whether it's in 2008 with Barack Obama or 2016 with Make America Great Again, when your hope isn't a political agenda, your hope is too small. Why do I say that? But here's the shocking reality. America may not be here when Jesus returns. Now, I hope it is. But there's no promise. There's no promise. And realize, as Americans who love our country, it doesn't mean we don't love our country and we want to honor our country. But we are a part of a royal and holy nation that right now, in civil disobedience in China, I've got brothers and sisters on their knees crying out to the Lord in worship and yet in defiance to their country because they've submitted themselves to Jesus Christ. And they are more a part of my family than those who live next door to me who disagree with what I believe. In Iran, in Iraq, and and in, in places in North Korea where Christians are not allowed to gather, and yet they're gathering today in disobedience to the government, surrendering their life to Jesus Christ, crying out under persecution and saying, Father, come and show your kingdom today. Those individuals are people to whom we are a part of the family of God. And yet they may be in countries to which we fundamentally disagree and wouldn't mind them being wiped off the face of the map. But realize we're wiping out our family. We're part of the kingdom of God. And so what Paul's saying here is, I mean, Peter, this is not Paul. I was just, just checking. This is, this is Peter. So, so we don't worship, but be careful. What I'm saying here is just be careful about political idolatry. And then lastly, submitting to government doesn't mean we don't push for change. Absolutely, we push for change. Absolutely. Jesus pushed for change. But it's interesting. Many people say, you know, the New Testament never talks about dissolving slavery. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, do not be foolish. But to say, just simply say, slavery is bad. That's one way you can solve things with the law. You know how the New Testament solved it? Just read through the letters of of Colossians or Ephesians. It says, Masters, slaves, worship together. Let me, tell, let me ask you, what's going to change your relationship to a slave? And slavery was not racial slavery of what we understand in our country. It was a different kind of slavery. It doesn't mean it was good. It was still harsh. It was still oppressive. But it's not the slavery we understand in the United States. But when you take a master and you bring his slave next to him in the same gathering, because in this body... It's Christ that determines our status, which means we're all on the same playing field. We're the children of God. And that slave arms up worshiping the Lord, the master worshiping the Lord side by side, singing the same song together. 
that'll change the heart. Laws change behaviors, but church, Jesus came to change the heart. It comes just to change behavior. And so they addressed issues like that subversively. The gospel comes in, raises the value of people, and changes things subversively. And so the last thing that, that we see is it doesn't, it just doesn't simply mean we obey, but what does it mean to submit to, to the governing authorities? Well, it does in one sense may mean we obey the laws of the land. I know on the one hand we don't obey absolutely, but the laws of the land are given so that all people can flourish. And you may think of a law as foolish or insignificant, but here's the reality. God hasn't given you the right to make that determination. So I don't know if you notice, in Peter he said every authority. Submit yourself to every authority, whether just or unjust authority. And think of the words of Jesus. In Matthew 22, someone comes to Jesus and, and says, you know, Caesar is unjust. Do you know what he's doing with our tax dollars? He's using our tax dollars in an oppressive way. So what was the question? Should we pay taxes, right? Remember that? Matthew 22. And what did Jesus say? Hey, give me a dollar. All right, maybe not. But let me see, let me look at that dollar. And he looked at the dollar and he said, whose, whose face is that? Maybe it's a Benjamin. That'd be nice, right? Have a Benjamin. Not a Washington. Whose face is that? Well, it's the face of our leader. Well, give unto the United States what belongs to the United States. But give unto God what is God's. What's he saying? That our, our devotion... First and foremost is to God. So whether the law is unjust, whether obedience to that law leads to greater injustice, we still, we still obey. We still obey. We render to them what belongs to them. Second, it means honoring. And this is a struggle. Honor does not mean agreement. We've got to change this in the church. Honoring an individual does not mean agreeing with a person. I, I think we struggle with this. To a great extent. I'll tell you one of the areas I saw, I see this happen. I don't know if you remember, a number of years ago in, in Florida, there was a, a mass shooting, a nightclub. Did the church rise up and say that's wrong? The church was silent. You know why? Because that nightclub was filled with lesbians and gays and LGBT. It was a homosexual nightclub. The church has to rise up wherever there is injustice, regardless of who the injustice is perpetrated against. The unbelieving world sees that hypocrisy. We rise up wherever there is injustice, wherever there are those that are being mistreated. It's a difference between honoring someone is not the same as agreeing with someone. And that's why he says in verse 17, doesn't it seem odd, honor everyone? Why does he start that way? Because everyone in that list, except for fear God, is a person. And here's the beauty of Christianity that only comes from the Old and New Testament is we are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. When you slander a human being, you slander God. And it doesn't matter who they are. You with me? When you slander another human being, you're slandering the face of God. To not honor a human being is to not honor God. Because each one of us is created in the image of God. James talks about this in the book of James. 
In James chapter 3, he talks about the way we use our tongue. And he says, with it, meaning with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. But then listen, with it, we curse men who are made in God's likeness. Now, he could have cut it off right there, right? With it, we curse men. Don't do that. What does he add? He adds the identity of the people we're speaking against. Regardless of who they are, they're created in the image of God, which means they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among them should be honor. Christians, we have to be the ones that bring civility back to discourse because we have in our theology, if we would live it out, what would create honor and respect for every single human being. That's what Peter's saying. He's not saying agree with the king. He's not saying, what he's saying is stop slandering. Stop sending out these tweets. They don't do anything. But infuriate the people who disagree with you. Stop slandering your political officials. Don't call them idiots. Don't call them ignorant. That's not an argument. When, When has slander become an argument? How far have we fallen in our public discourse, that even on a national level, in the news, people will slander our governing officials and think in some way that's a cogent, sane argument. It's not an argument. Disagree with ideas. Love people. That's all it is. Jesus disagreed many times. You know, the ones he had the hardest time with were the religious ones who claimed to represent God. Pilate didn't represent God. You know how Jesus approached Pilate, who was an unjust leader? He approached him in a way that Pilate would come to glorify God on the day of visitation. You see what I'm saying? He approached Pilate in a way that the most important thing he wanted for Pilate was not to win the argument, but to win Pilate's heart. So that Pilate would surrender his life to Jesus Christ. So that he would worship. That he would see in Jesus a subversive way of approaching things that would reflect the gospel. So how do we respond? We honor. We speak well. We lift up. We don't tear down. We use our words to draw people, not to where they're wrong, but to the one who can make them right. And that's hard, isn't it? Because I, I want to I make the argument. But you know what that is? Listen, real quick. That's self-righteousness. To win the argument is to cover myself in being right. And I'll tell you, before God, I'm not covered because I got things right. I'm covered because Jesus Christ died and He made me right. And so if my morality today leads me in a political direction, that's honor to Jesus. It's not honor to me. And I want to approach everyone in a way, not that they'd come to agree with my political agendas, but they come to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, whether Democrat or Republican, it's not the issue. We live in a way, why? What did he say? So they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God. If they're glorifying God, it's because they're now a part of the family of God. And why did they become a part of the family of God? Well, the same way that that Jesus described it. Jesus said it this way, if I can find it. So just wait. Matthew 5, in the same way, listen. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is going to lead them to give glory to the Father? An attractive life. 
It's an attractive life that opens the heart up to the gospel. And so with people we disagree, we have to be gospel-centered. Now, let me close with this. How do we do this? Because this seems hard. And let me tell you, I fail on this all the time. I'm just like you, maybe. Right? I think we are. I get mad. I get frustrated. I want to call people idiots. I want to post that thing on Twitter. I want to argue. I I, I want to do all that. I've got a flesh, right? And I've got an agenda, too. But I need to die to self. How do I do that? Here it is. You ready? Verse 16. You can do it because you're free. Why can we live this life? Listen, he says, live as, I love this, freemen. (laughs) Be like Jason. No, don't be like Jason. (laughs) Live as free women. What does that mean? You don't have to be right. That person knowing you're right does not matter. Because you're right in the sight of God. When that descends into the heart, you're full. I don't need to prove myself to you. I've got a heart that's full. I've got a heart that loves God. I've got a heart that's captivated by God. My only agenda is to see that you would come to know God. See, what he said earlier on, he says, we live to declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness. You notice that in verse... 9 and 10, called you, he's called you out of darkness. You know what darkness is? Needing to live for your approval. Needing to be right. That's self-righteousness. But when you're under the righteousness of Jesus, when you realize the reason you have the love of God the Father, the reason you have the Holy Spirit, the reason you have the Word of God, the reason we have the family of God together is because Jesus Christ died and He sets you free. And see, freedom is not the absence of restriction. I know in our culture, I want to just be free. And they think by being free, somehow they're no longer going to be under law. But no, they're just bringing themselves under an unknown law. Freedom is the presence of the right restrictions. The restrictions that make you most human. The restrictions that cause you to become most like God. That's what the commandments of God are. They're not to limit joy in life. Rather, you come under the law of God and it sets you free because the law of God is the presence of the restrictions that glorify God and draw others to Him. You with me? The law of God glorifies God. What do you you mean it glorifies God? When I'm with somebody that disagrees with me and we're in that moment and he feels what I feel, because we all got that pit. I want to win. I want to win. And instead, in that moment, I honor Him. I listen. I love. I sacrifice. I serve. Do you think that in that moment he's going to encounter somebody who's a little bit different than the normal conversation? And then when I come and bring the gospel in behind it, there's going to be a weight to that message because he sees the life that we live. And even if they disagree with the laws we hold to, it's hard to disagree with Jesus because Jesus was attractive. He was beautiful. And when we as the church live that way, in the community of Evergreen in Colorado, the gospel, the gospel becomes more beautiful and fragrant. You see what he's saying? We submit ourselves to the king. He is the one we follow. And if we follow Jesus, let us approach things the way that Jesus did. Hey, let me pray for us. 
Father, this is challenging. I just confess to you, Lord, that um, so many issues on our public discourse are so incredibly important. Whether we talk about sanctity of life or we talk about the institution of marriage, these are issues, Lord, that are not just grounded in political ideas, they're grounded in you. And yet, Father, you've told us the ultimate message is the message of the gospel. And so we are to live in such a way that we argue ideas but not destroy people. That we show honor and deference. That we, our words are seasoned with salt. That we are silent when we need to be silent. We're slow to speak, slow to become angry because this is the way the righteousness of God is revealed. And so, Father, I, I personally just submit to You and say, Lord, would You change my heart not to win and not to need to win, but to know, Lord, because... You surrendered your freedom. You gave up that which I desire. You gave it up for us so that we would be the children of God. And so today, because of that, we can walk in freedom. Father, I love you. Thank you for the message of the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.